The message is entitled again, The Mystery of the Trinity. And this is part three. The mystery of the Trinity, as we have stated, um, cannot be understood to its full end with our rational minds. It is above human reason, but it is not contrary to reason as we have seen. All three persons of the Trinity are active and act in an interrelational manner with one another for the purpose of God. Listen to the words of Jesus in um, Luke ten twenty two. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will to reveal him. And so you have a cooperation and an interrelationship with the Father and the Son in a very clear way. We also, through John, are told in Second John, there's only one chapter, verse 9, he says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. They're so tied together that the doctrine embraces both of them. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. I and the Father are one. Paul tells the Romans, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness, Romans 8.10. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've already gone over uh, John's chapters 14, 15, and 16 as he spends that night before he's betrayed there about the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, the comforter come alongside, the one who would speak for Jesus, about Jesus, never of himself. He would bring glory to Jesus. He would be with them all the time. Now man is in his finite existence tries to understand the infinite things of God. In this case, that there are three persons, yet one God. God is transcendent. In other words, he is beyond our finding out. We can understand things that he has revealed to a certain extent, and there's some things that are so far beyond us that we wouldn't understand them. But the things that he does reveal to us, we can understand the majority of them by the new mind that he's given us, the Holy Spirit, and his enablement, enlightenment. God is imminent, involving him with his creation. So in other words, God didn't just create the world and then let it go on its own. He's involved. He, he's acting upon the earth, the planets, the creation of man. He is involved in every way. God is eternal and the only God. He has always been. There is no other. We've seen that also. God is spirit and very personal. He saves individually, not corporately. Yet individually, we make up the corporate body of Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved for your children. Your children cannot be saved for you. Your husband cannot be saved in your place. Every person must repent and be saved individually. He's a personal God. God's attributes are infinite and immutable. None can compare. 
In other words, infinite, they're inexhaustible, they're eternal. Immutable, they cannot increase or decrease. They cannot be affected at all in any way. I made the illustration about the grace of God. If you went down to the Pacific Ocean, you took a five-gallon bucket and you take five gallons of salt water out, you just diminish the Pacific Ocean by five gallons. You take all the sins of the world that God has ever forgiven up to this point. His grace has not been affected at all. It's immutable. It cannot increase. It cannot decrease. It just is. God is God with a compound unity of three persons, yet one God. Very clear as we've seen up to this point. So we come to our last study of the doctrine of the Trinity by looking at the nature of the Trinity as revealed in the Scriptures. First, the Scriptures declare the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal. We're going to look at that first. Then the Scriptures declare that each person is God. And thirdly, the Scriptures declare the purposes of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in one word. One. Absolute one. So let's begin here with the Scriptures declaring that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all, each of them, co-equal. All three persons are eternal. They had no beginning and are infinite. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6. The Father says through Isaiah, I am the first and the last. Revelation 1, 17. John tells us the Son says, I am the first and the last. Hebrews 9.14 tells us the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. All three share the same attribute. They're co-equal. There's no contradiction. All three are omnipresent, meaning present everywhere at the same time. The Father speaking through Jeremiah declares the following, Jeremiah 23, 24. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord Yahweh? It's a rhetorical question with only one correct answer. Yes. Matthew 28, 20 records the words of Jesus. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The age that he's talking about is the church age. The age to come is the millennial kingdom. The psalm is uh, speaking about the Spirit of God, says the following in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Some people think that Satan runs hell. News break, Jesus runs hell. It's a place of punishment. Okay? Satan will be cast into the lake of fire after everybody is judged at the white throne judgment. They're cast in the lake of fire. The false prophet, the antichrist, lake of fire. Okay? 
All three possess omniscience, all knowledge. They cannot learn anything. They're not shocked. They have all knowledge. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord Yahweh, our God. In the context of that, he is speaking about God's ability to bring back the future captivity of Israel who would betray him and bring him back as a nation. That's the context. How are you going to do it? Secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed to us, they're revealed. But he has all knowledge. In fact, a couple of times he tells Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? When he told Jeremiah he was going to put him in captivity seven years and then bring him back. And Jeremiah is in jail and he's starting to doubt God. And he says, and God tells Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? And the context is to bring him back after 70 years. <laughs> wow. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're all in Him. Nothing is lacking in Christ. None of the persons of the Trinity have ever asked counsel of anybody. Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.10 that the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. As the three persons of the Trinity are working in the salvation of lost man. The Father draws, the Son, through the Spirit, illuminates and convicts, and He makes Jesus the object of salvation. All three are working to save mankind from their sins. All three are omnipotent, all-powerful. God the Father told Abraham in Genesis 17.1 I am almighty God El Shaddai almighty nothing's lacking the phrase that we've run across often in the minor and senior in the major prophets is uh, the Lord of hosts the captain of the armies of heaven in other words he's never been defeated he, there's no one that can oppose him nobody that can thwart his purposes at all and that's power. John 1, 8, or, or Revelation 1, 8, John tells us um, of the multi-identifications Jesus calls himself as being, I am the Almighty. He has many different names. Here's another one, just like the Father. The Almighty. Zechariah 4, 6, we just finished Zechariah a few months back. He was told by God the secret of accomplishing his works. And that is not by might, not by power, but by my Holy Spirit says, the Lord of hosts. There it is, the captain of the armies of heaven. So you have all three persons co-equal. By the Spirit, the earth was shaped. By the Spirit, Christ was conceived. By the Spirit, we are regenerated and renewed. By the Spirit, we will be transformed one day into the exact image of Jesus Christ. We shall not all sleep, we shall be changed in a moment, the twinkling of the eye. 
1 Corinthians 15 tells us. The harpazel, the rapture of the church, the snatching away suddenly, violently, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. Paul tells the Corinthians that all three persons of the Trinity being co-equal were involved in creating all things. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, for, for us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. So he attributes the creation to the Father. The opening verse of Genesis declares, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Remember Elohim. Anything, any word in the Hebrew ending with I am is a plurality. What a great place to put the Trinity. In the beginning, the Trinity created the heaven and the earth. <laughs> Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 1.16, By him meaning Jesus, are all things that were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. No contradiction. John declares all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made in John 1, 3. So you have the Father involved in creation. You have the Son involved in creation. Listen to the words of Job in Job 33, 4. He says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty given me life. So now you have the Spirit also involved. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis 1-2 says. The Spirit of God, the Father, the Son, all of them involved in creation. Psalm 104-30 says, You send forth your Spirit. They are created bara out of nothing and you renew the face of the earth the commentary on Genesis 1 104.30 of Psalms interesting uses the same word create out of nothing bara because there's bara there's asa which means out of 16 material and then there's molding and shaping another word okay the council of uh, Chalcedon in 451 declared the following about the Trinity. We worship one God in the Trinity. In the Trinity in unity. We distinguish among the persons, but we do not divide the substance. The entire three persons are co-eternal, co-equal with one another, so that we worship complete unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Yet one God. So the scriptures declare to us that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. That's the revelation of God. Secondly, 
the scriptures declare that each person is God. If they're co-equal, then the only logical conclusion is there must be evidence that they are God. All three are eternal. All three are omnipresent, as we've seen. Omniscient, omnipotent. They're all involved in the creation, as we've seen. Should we be surprised or even doubt that each person is God just with these few things that we've seen? You can't conclude anything else. Now, the epistle of Paul, in their opening salutations and greetings, they have the following. God the Father, or God our Father, as you read his epistles. The other epistles if not in their opening statements, do so in their epistles also. In um, Romans 1.7, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Philippians 1.2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father has very clearly declared that, and in some of these grammatical structures, that also equates that Jesus is God. And what should we say about the testimony of the Father being God when we studied the doctrines of, the, of God itself um, years back? The evidence is all over. The Old Testament is full of such examples. Now, Jesus is also declared God through the New Testament. Because remember, when, um, when, when Paul and these guys were speaking and ministering, they only had the Old Testament. You do realize Paul went to the synagogue, not with the New Testament, okay? All they had were the old. You go to the synagogues, it was the scrolls. The New Testament is being written at that time. Uh, probably by 64, 65, 64, probably uh, all of them were done except for John. John wrote the latest in 90, um, the revelation of the gospel, as he's um, been put in Patmos. But uh, all they had was the Old Testament. So Jesus also has declared God through the New Testament. Let me give you some scriptures for this. Uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 28, John records for us uh, the event of Thomas as he touched the hands of Jesus, and he said, My Lord and my God. Jesus is called God. Now many people say, Well, I can believe that Jesus is a good teacher. I believe he's a prophet, but not God. Well, if, if you don't believe he's God, your acknowledgement that he's a prophet or a teacher is irrelevant. You're calling him a liar. That doesn't get you into heaven. You have to believe that he's God, the Messiah of God, the second person of the Trinity who came to die for the sins of the world. Titus 2.13 declares that we are looking for the blessed hope, meaning the rapture, 
in the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Real straight and forward. Calls him God. To the author of the book of Hebrews, says this, But to the Son he says, meaning the Father, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews 1, 8. He's quoting Psalm 45, 6. The Father calls the Son God. Very clear. John the Beloved, in 1 John 5, 20, declares, And we know that the Son of God is come. This is the true God. And eternal life. People say, well, where's the Bible? I've never, I've never read the Jesus God. Have you read the Bible? It's all over. The Gospel of John begins with the proclamation that Jesus is God incarnate. John says that the word was from the beginning alluding to the eternal existence of the word in John 1 at the beginning there. John goes back from the very beginning there. The very eternal existence before time. John then tells us that the word was with God, distinguishing between the word and God, identifying for us two persons. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. You cannot be alone if you're with someone else. Simple. Okay? Two people there. The word with in the Greek literally means facing. So the one person, the Word, was facing God. Fellowship. Oneness. John then tells us one more thing about whoever this word is, which you know and I know who he is, is that the word was God. Literally in the Greek, God was the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and God was the word. Simple. Very, very clear. Very straightforward. And then, if that's not enough, when you go down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, John says that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation. God took on human form. In fact, Hebrews 10.5 says, But a body, the Son, Jesus speaking, but a body you have prepared for me. Isaiah prayed, oh, that you would rent the heavens and come down. He did. <laughs> 700 years later. Answer to his prayer. Paul declared to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4.4, 4, the incarnation. God became man. The second person of the Trinity. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, 
Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. There's the incarnation. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up in glory. So God abdicated his throne. Became man. Walked in this world. Died for the sins of the world. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended up on high. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. Making intercession for you and for I. And all who call upon his name. The second person. Finally, John tells us that the only one who has seen God is the one who was facing God. Being in the bosom of the Father, and he alone can reveal God the Father. I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I came to reveal the Father, he says. And Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst again. John six thirty three and 35. He comes down from heaven. He's interrelated with the Father. You can't separate them. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, what in the old King James is called showbread. Remember the priests, when they walked in the tabernacle, there would be the candelabra on the left-hand side, the table of bread on the right-hand side. That was called showbread. Literally, it's the bread of the face. What did John 1, 1 say? With God, facing God. What he says, I am the bread down from heaven. Okay? He identifies himself as the one to feed lost mankind, to save lost mankind. The second person of the Trinity, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Now, the Holy Spirit also is called God in both Old and New Testament. The Holy Spirit is called God directly and indirectly by his inner relationship with the Father and the Son. You remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, the Holy Spirit is called God there as the Apostle Peter is dealing with um, Ananias and Sapphira. In these two verses, it's only Ananias. The following verses, he deals with Sapphira, his wife. But they had um, the husband and wife were privy to uh, their giving to God financially. And having sold some land, they gave a portion. But they apparently lied about it and made it appear like they gave everything. Now, God doesn't want you to give everything. That's not what it's teaching. The text is not saying that you have to give everything. You know, when pastors or ministries tell you, you know, if, if you have two houses, you should sell one and give one to the church or whatever. If you have three cars, give one to Get up and walk out. All right? That's not what it's teaching. What it's teaching is that they had lied to God about it. That they gave the appearance that they were more giving than they did. And God smoked them. Okay? You know that. Peter told Ananias that he had not lied to, that he had lied to the Holy Spirit. Unto God in those two verses. 
He ties them together. Three and four. You have not lied to men, but to God. And that God is related to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the first verse, God in the second. Ties them together. Who's the Holy Spirit? God. That's what the scripture is teaching there. Not that people are to give a certain amount of money or all the money or if you're rich that you distribute your wealth. Absolutely not. That is not biblical. That's socialism. The Bible does not teach socialism. Okay? The Bible says that you are to work hard with your own hands. If you don't work, you don't eat. And now that you're a Christian, you work hard so that you can help others benevolently, lovingly, compassionately. You have all the right to give all your money away to help people if you want, but no one has the right to take your money from you. That's called theft. All right? And when pastors manipulate people, that's theft. All right? Real simple. I hate talking about money. But people abuse it in the church. Pastors are guilty of this all the time. Throughout the scriptures, you will read such statements as the Spirit of the Lord. He's already there in Acts, tied the Holy Spirit as God. The Spirit of the Lord, my Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of glory, the eternal Spirit, the Spirit of grace. All these titles and Connections with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. For we are told that He speaks. He testifies. He teaches. He intercedes. He guides. He ordains. He works miracles. He reproves. He regenerates. He prays. He searches. He loves. He wills and is sensitive. And we can go on and on and on. Those are all attributes of a person, ladies and gentlemen. If you can love, you can get angry. If you can have knowledge, those are attributes of a person. Absolutely. We are also told that he can be grieved, quenched, and blasphemed against. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. He's talking to Christians. Grieving means to bring pain, disobedience, rebellion. You as a father, as a mother, when your children don't obey you, does it please you? It grieves you, right? To quench means to limit the spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the spirit of God. So in other words, we don't truly trust the Spirit of God to do the work for us, but we think we can help Him out. We limit Him. Or we don't completely yield completely in obedience, whatever, so we limit what God wants to do. The psalmist says that the, the children of Israel limited the Lord in the wilderness. God wanted to do so much for them. And number one, just looking at the trip, it only was to take them 11 days to get through that. They spent 40 years there. They all died in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb entered in over the age of 22 people. You realize that over two, mil, two to three million people, only two entered in, right? Wow. When I was a young Christian, I used to think that um, 
the wilderness journey was the exception. 44 years later, I believe, is the rule. I think the majority die in the wilderness. The majority is always wrong with God's people. Study the scriptures. Prove me wrong. Eight got in the boat. The rest of the world was killed. Two went into the promised land. Over two to three million died in the wilderness. Over the age of 20. Interesting. The Spirit can be blasphemed. First Timothy 1.20 He speaks about turning them over to Satan. Phygelus, homogenes, lest they learn to blaspheme. Now listen carefully. Those are believers. You do not turn over non-believers to Satan. They already belong to him. You turn over believers who have turned their back on God and become deceivers or refuse to repent in hope that they might repent and come back to God. They're in Timothy and also 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When that young man, 1 Corinthians 5, first of all, Paul speaks about the young man that, uh, um, that was sleeping with the stepmother. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he had repented and they didn't want to let him back in the church. And Paul says, what's your problem? First, you don't want to kick him out. And then now you don't want to let him in. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of flesh that his spirit may be saved. So the turning over of people to Satan, the context is Christians who have been rebellious, are rebellious, don't want to repent, or are deceivers. Is that clear? Because non-believers already belong to Satan. You don't have to turn them over to him. Real simple, okay? Even as God is absolute one, as we're studying the Trinity, he is absolutely three. Even as he is one in nature, he is tripersonal. Three infinite, external, or eternal, existing centers of self-consciousness and each being God. Self-conscious is not in the way the New Age speaks about it, but just the, the awareness of the Godhead. Okay? All three being one. And so the scriptures declared to each of us that each person is God. Okay? None is inferior. Co-equal and equal in every way. Third and last, the scriptures declare the purposes of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in that one word. One. Absolute one. There are three distinct persons, yet one God, co-equal, co-eternal, but throughout the scriptures they are altered one for the other and interrelated in such a way that it is difficult at times to know whether the Father or the Son is being directed. Sometimes it's very clear, other times it's hard to tell. Let me give you some scriptures. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Very clearly, we can distinguish between the one and the other, yet they are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet, we've never seen the Father. But when Jesus walked, he says, if you've seen me, then you've got a good picture of who my Father is and what he's like. And sometimes, um, 
people will say to a man, you know, well, what's your son look like? Look at my face. You see me? You see my son. Okay? I was telling little Oscar, I still call him little Oscar. He's already a man. He's got a baby and everything. I said, yeah, you got to be ashamed of yourself. Look at your baby. You gave him your mug. He looks just like him. Okay? Jesus said, you see me, you've seen the father. Jesus said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which is him, is capitalized, the Father. We can see the distinction between the two. I do always those things that please the Father. Very clearly we can see the two persons. They are three distinct persons, yet interdependent then. The Father is revealed by the Son, John 1.18, whoever the Son reveals to him, as many as gave authority to become the children of God. He reveals the Father. The Father sent the Son, we are told in John 6.29. The Father testifies of the Son in John 8.18. We hear words like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, at the baptism. The son declared the father was in him in John 10, 38. The son did nothing of his own self. He became the last Adam, just like the first Adam taking on flesh. And everything he did, he did by going to the Father in prayer and obeying him and depending on the Father to do the work that he has sent me, to demonstrate that we are able to do the will of God. One exactly like the first Adam, yet without sin. To demonstrate that the first Adam chose to fail and the last Adam would not fail. And therefore, if you're not born again, you are in the first Adam, dead in trespasses and sins. If you are in the last Adam, you're in Jesus Christ, justified before God and alive from the dead. So you stand in one of two positions. The Holy Spirit came to do the will and the work of the Father. John 4.34 and 9.4. The Holy Spirit speaks not of his own authority, but the authority of Christ in John 16, 13. In fact, the Holy Spirit never speaks of himself, never draws attention to himself, never brings glory to himself. So when people start doing that towards the Holy Spirit, it's really not biblical. Though they're all God, they're all equal, they have their place. We saw even when we pray, we were, pray, we're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, right? Some Christians get upset at that. They say, well, can I go to Jesus? Right? Yeah, you can. But the Father said, this is the chain of command. Jesus said in John uh, 14, 15, 16, and that day you shall ask me nothing. Please ask the Father in my name. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will do it. He's the mediator. Okay? That's the chain of command. Simple. The Holy Spirit glorifies and reveals the things of Christ, not himself. John 16, 14. 
Now the Son announces the coming of the Spirit, as we have indicated in John fourteen ten through eleven, verse sixteen, verse twenty three, verse twenty six, and John fifteen fourteen. And there's others there. You take the three chapter fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen is all about the Holy Spirit, and he intertwines the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They each have their place. Now the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Both are said to send the Comforter. No contradiction. John fourteen twenty six, and John fifteen twenty six. Easy to remember. Verse twenty six, both chapters. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. Now, they are also three distinct persons, yet there is such a blending and flowing of the Godhead as one that there is never any jealousy, envy, or striving, and such is the desire of God for us. Jesus, in praying to the Father, said the following, um, here in John 17, 20 and 21, which, by the way, is the Lord's Prayer. The Our Father who art in heaven is not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus could have never prayed that. There's petition for forgiveness of sins. He had no sin. All right? And many times people say, well, why does he pray, deliver us from evil? Because the evil of your heart. Though you're a child of God, you still have a miserable, evil heart. Jeremiah 79. Deliver us from the evil that is in us that we don't yield to it. So, but right here in John 17, this is the Lord's prayer as the Lord is praying to the Father before he goes back to be reunited with him. He says, Jesus praying, he says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking about the disciples, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17, verse 20 and 21. Wow. The Godhead has an order for the purpose of the redemptive plan. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So Christ is subject to the Father for the work of redemption. But it doesn't make him inferior to God. So the woman being submissive to the son or to the husband is not inferiority. The son submitted to the father for effectiveness. The woman in submission is for effectiveness of the work of God. The two, husband and wife, are one. The father and the son are one. They're not inferior. They're distinct, different persons, yet one. When a man marries a woman, they become one. They're not two but one. There is no inferiority, though there is submission by the Son to the Father. The Father is not in any way superior to the Son. Jesus said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. 
If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. In John 14, 28. The greater is in the fact that Jesus limited himself for a set time. And he occupied a physical body for the purpose of redemption. Not that he was less than God the Father. For a set time, Jesus abdicated his throne. He became man. He limited himself for a set time. He hungered. He thirsted. He got tired. He had to sleep. He cried. He died. A real man. For a set time, he limited himself for the redemptive work of salvation. Paul, speaking of this very thing, says, who being in the form of God, Philippians speaks about it, chapter 2, being in the form of God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And so a name was given to him above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Paul tells him, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Being God, he humbled himself. What did he come down to do? To wash feet and die for sinners. The Philippians were not humble. The Philippians had a problem. They, they weren't united. They weren't living their life out with the mind of Christ. We've been in the Philippians for a long time in our death study on Thursdays. Jesus divested himself of his previous glory, not his deity. He was God before he came. He was God when he was here and he was God when he left and he's still God. Simple. Jesus prayed to the Father, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 17, 5. There's the Lord's Prayer again. He's talking to the Father. The priority of the Father is evident by the fact that He is always mentioned first. So in the scriptures, we have the priority of persons, but we've already said they're co-equal. They're not inferior. Listen carefully. The baptismal formula reveals in Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Who came first? The Father. The Apostle Paul says, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Who's mentioned first? The Father. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 5 through 6. God, the Father, placed all things under his, his feet, meaning Christ. And appoint him to be head over everything for the church. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and all in all. In fact, the Father is the source. The Son is the channel. And the Holy Spirit 
is the agent in the work of salvation. Each having their parts. Just like your body has their part. The hand has its part in the, part, in the whole of the body. The hand is not a foot. The hand is not inferior to the foot. It holds the same value for the purpose it was made. There's an axiom in geometry that says no part is greater than the whole. The sum of its parts is equal to the whole. Okay? And the same with the body of Jesus Christ. Many members, one head. All taking directions from the head, Jesus Christ. And so, the Father is always demonstrated as the source, the Son as the channel, and the Holy Spirit as the agent. Three persons, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior. The Trinity. Tertullian wrote, So also the Father is other than the Son, since he is greater than the Son, since it is one that begets, another that is begotten, since it is one that sends, another that is sent, since it is one that acts, another through whom action takes place. So they're interrelated, interdependent, co-equal, all God, in this mysterious work of the three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. Yet you will never find the word Trinity, but you will find the Trinity from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Wow. The scriptures declare that the purposes of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in the word one. Absolute one. And so the nature of the Trinity revealed in the scripture declares that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. That each person is God. And that the purposes of the three persons of Godhead are summed up in one word. One. One God. Yet three persons. I pray that these three teachings have helped you to understand and how to be able to respond to people about the Trinity. Uh, Peter says that we are to give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in it with meekness and fear. God has put you wherever you're at, at work, in your neighborhood, your family members, your friends, to be able to give them clear answers when they ask certain things. Sometimes even asking in a, an attitude of mockery, perhaps, or to think they're going to stump you or or embarrass you or something. But that you always realize that that attack is not against you, but against Jesus Christ. But that you may be equipped in the Word of God to be able to say, well, you know, the Bible says this. If I, let me turn to Colossians. Let me show you here. Let me show you this. And you give to them. Now the ball's in their court. They have to now respond to the objective truth that you have given to them. That which God has revealed, that there's no way we could ever know or be absolutely sure of his truth if he had not revealed it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what an incredible statement that is? 
We would never know that God created if He didn't tell us. The whole lie of evolution. We're going to have our Simple Truth Conference on. There's so many opinions, so many lies, so many false hypotheses that really are anti-God. And they reject the evidence of Scripture. That in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He's not trying to convince you. He's just telling you what He did. And it's up to you whether you believe it or not. He gave you two chapters for creation. Two chapters. Really, one chapter in the order, one through seven, the days. The second one gives you detail to put back in about man, Adam and Eve. If you and I would have written creation, we would have made a hundred volumes. We would have made it so intricate, so detailed, because we want people to think we're smart, right? So God's not trying to impress anybody. He's just trying to reach lost man by his revelation. This book has been around for over 2,000 years in the New Testament. You add the other 4,000, 6,000 years. All the men and women who have fought against the Scriptures and tried to get rid of them, they're gone. The Bible's still here. The Bible has never been recalled. We have more manuscript evidence about the Bible than any other form of literature. It's still the number one seller in spite of how atheistic we are in the United States today <laughs> in the world. Amazing to me. And so I pray that God would bless you and He would give you wisdom and use you as you study the Word of God to be able to respond to people's questions because people are desperate for answers and it's a very dark world that we live in today. Father, we thank you, we worship you, we thank you for tonight, and I pray for every person tonight, your hand be upon them. Lord, we thank you for the, your word that we can study and uh, allow us to understand with clarity the things that you reveal about yourself. And Lord, I pray for even those that may be here tonight or over the internet that don't know you, that by your Holy Spirit you would turn on the light and give them illumination to understand their lostness and bring their conviction to you, Lord of their need of you to forgive their sins. And we pray, Lord, that they would call on your name and you would save them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Or maybe you're over the Internet. If this is you and God has spoken to you and you believe that Jesus Christ is God, as we've looked at the Scriptures, that he did become man and died in your place and rose from the dead, then you can be saved by calling upon Him. If this is you, this is your prayer of repentance to accept Him. And whatever you've ever committed, He says He will forgive every one of your sins and make you a brand new creature, give you a new heart, give you a new nature, a new mind, a new spirit, into a new family, the family of God. Why? Because he loves you and he does it by grace through faith. That not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Because you have agreed with what God says is the way to get saved. By believing that Jesus died for your sins. And that you see yourself as an enemy of God and dead in your trespasses and sins and ask forgiveness. And he honors your faith. 
Faith always points you to the revelation of God. You believe what God has revealed about you, sin, and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.